The Smell in the Wardrobe by Bibi Birkin. My mother died pretty much as she had lived, with a subdued anger, with weary patience. Damn it, she seemed to be saying, as she slipped with vicious speed from bearable pain to rapid emaciation. Just hang on, her eyes implored to something, someone, as she hastily arranged her affairs in the weeks that remained. I can't keep up, was the exclamation mark of her collapse. It was like one of those depictions of consular staff getting out of a country gripped by a sudden coup, all hurrying, hurrying, frantically hurrying, but needing to finish up first to get something done properly. I don't know what. And she went, leaving the cartoon puff of smoke in her wake, so hasty was her departure. My father and I rubbed our eyes and slumped with helplessness and bewilderment. What had just happened? I tell you why my mother should never have died so young in her early fifties, still so smooth and pink in the face and lively in the limbs, because she was still waiting for her turn, that's why. For so long, impatience must have simmered beneath the surface while she pictured her real life, her selfish life, her time of delicious achievement. She hinted at it when I was young, before she could have had any idea of her truncated lifespan. I don't mind looking after you now, she told us. I love to cook for you and play with you and take you to school and to the museum and swimming and watch the telly with you. It's because my time will come. I can have all this good stuff with you and then when you don't need me or want me anymore, I'll do my own stuff. I remember thinking at the time that she couldn't possibly have any good stuff other than us, but I enjoyed her optimism. And what was her good stuff? Well... Nothing all that ambitious now that I think of it. Nothing that we couldn't have accommodated during our upbringing. She was a musician, a composer, and had produced some notable work very young and before she was married. But she'd relinquished her ambitions even before we were born and was teaching music when she met my father, who was an academic, a physicist, and busy with his own urgent desire to achieve. She was waiting struggling with desires and aspirations, setting them aside as though it were doing her some sort of good, building up a backlog of good stuff. Two girls and two boys were produced from the age of 26 onwards. I was the second child. I was taken to museums and swimming and I sat on her lap while we watched TV. We ate her elaborate meals, wore the clothes she sewed us, came to her over and again with our questions, our pains and our promises. We were the centre for her forever. There was no her, just all of us. It never occurred to us that she might run out of time. Our own successful outcomes appeared to be her only priority, and she succeeded. My elder brother, living in Australia as an academic, a scientist, like our father. My younger sister and younger brother both work in the media, and I've had my own fabric design business since my mid-twenties. Started with our mother's help, blessing and, more productively, her excitement. My thoughts are my own, my actions are my own, the rewards are my own. I reside in an entirely selfish place, a place my mother longed to visit. She waited and waited, barely able to contain herself, until she could lock herself into it as well. And my father? Well, he was too busy following his own path. You know how it is. 
They did love each other, of course they did. People generally do. But they didn't see any kind of big picture. I think perhaps big pictures can only be seen in retrospect, on other people's behalves. So my father and I are left standing here, rubbing our eyes, wondering what has happened. Where has she gone? Will you be all right, Dad? I ask when I come upon him at the empty kitchen table, his eyes on the nothing of beyond the window. I'm staying with him a little while. His wife vanished all of six months ago. That's nothing. A blink of an eye on the so-called path of healing. There is no healing anyway. I haven't even allowed myself that journey because I want none of it. I have been sleeping in my old bedroom and he in theirs. Would you mind, my love, just staying with me a couple more days? Will that be a problem? Yes, I mind, but I'm ashamed to say it. I yearn for my selfish life. I loosen the coffee cup from his hands, which are sitting stiffly curved on the table, and refill it for him. I sigh like a weary GP and ask, Are you lonely? He keeps his eyes on the fog outside. Not as such, he murmurs. It is mid-morning, but the light is thin and the day is representative of no textbook season. It feels unborn, indeterminate, and the house seems wrapped in its own personal mist, nothing visible outside. I can be sure he feels the same way as I do, that we should stay inside in case the world will evaporate at our touch. We hold on to the kitchen table, the solid centre of our family life. We talk a little about my siblings, about when we can expect to see them. We even enter the strange and prickly territory of mentioning my mother. Would you mind moving her clothes for me, please? Carl is coming. He'll need some wardrobe space and her wardrobe is on the landing. I know where her wardrobe is. He doesn't need to tell me. I ask him, Carl, you know Carl, honestly. Oh, Carl. I do know Carl. I just have trouble focusing today. He's such a dear friend to my father, but such a rare visitor that I don't recall having seen him for maybe a decade. Once, when we were children, he came to the house for a night or two, alone, when visiting London for work. He'd stayed up late with my parents, among the bottles and crumpled napkins on the kitchen table, and they'd laughed like adolescents while we watched the television and told them to keep the noise down. His wife had stayed home in Durham, and shortly after that, in her late thirties, in the early 1980s, she died. Yes, another rapidly departing mother, this time leaving two bitterly perplexed young daughters. I know my parents had visited him several times, always without us, but they didn't share their experiences with us of tending to a grieving family. As a student, coincidentally in Durham, some six years later, I never once looked in on the widower or his children, despite my father's urgings. It's embarrassing, he said more than once. She was so sweet to you when you were little. You played on her lap. I was a baby. I don't remember. I didn't remember. It was true. And I didn't see why that should propel me towards sitting among the household remains, struggling to maintain a conversation beyond anything I'd yet encountered. 
What cowards we are, we comfortable and well-loved middle-class children. I was spineless, far from independent. Foremost of my siblings, I couldn't bear to be away from my mother. And after graduating, I settled a mere London borough away. I look at my father and I resent him suddenly for supposing he can still give me instructions. What are you so afraid of, I want to ask him. You put our clothes away. There are only clothes, for goodness sake. But when I reach the landing and open the mirrored door of the wardrobe, I too retreat into shambling self-pity. A smell meets me, gets me in its docile embrace. It's not a bodily smell. I don't know what it is. It's her. There is the gold paisley silk dress from a time when clothes were not produced in such vast numbers as now. I wondered always if it was the only one of its kind. And the long, wine-knitted jacket. Unbearable pain to see clothes left unowned. They, of all possessions, reconstruct the wearer in the mind. I reach my arms in, turn my face aside and gather together four or five of the garments. Then the doorbell rings. I don't want to go. I so wish I could see you. See you in these clothes. Dad! I relinquish the clothes, some of them dropping to the wardrobe floor. This irritates me beyond logic. Dad! Where the hell is he? I sweep down the stairs, past the front door with its fractured human silhouette behind stained glass, and to the kitchen. The back door is open. He must have gone to the shed. I yell to him through the mist, but wonder if my voice has even reached him. I've no choice but to answer the door myself and return to the hall. An arm on the other side reaches towards the doorbell, so I open the door at once, swing it hard, letting it jolt into my body. I'm shaken and embarrassed, but when I look at the visitor, I cannot speak. My eyes are suddenly squinting, my vision instantly fogged and frayed. I can make out Carl. There he stands as I glimpse him, all grey suit and silver hair and paternal smile. But that's all I give him, a glimpse. Because the woman standing beside him is unexpected, and I can't quite focus on her. I squint and look again, and fierce flames of light flutter in rags on the periphery of my vision. My hearing, too, is muffled, like the sound of impaired clarity as a train rushes into a tunnel. I can see her. I cannot see her conventionally. The sides of my sight are worming colours, but she's there, dream-soft, ebbing at her edges, but substantial, too, leaning into Carl belonging to him. She smiles sunlight at me, greets me with light. Her dark hair is in a floating pile on the very top of her head. She reaches out a hand to me and I reach mine to her. I think I shake her hand. My eyes are shivering in their sockets. I can't concentrate on anything. But then Carl puts his into mine and the cheerful solidity of his grasp pulls my eyes to him and the flaring colours recede. My mind begins to focus again. Oh, come in, I hear myself say. 
I stand against the wall to let them pass and close my eyes to let this episode pass, to recover from whatever kind of attack I've just experienced. I open them and am relieved that my vision is whole and normal. I can see Carl's back progressing down the hall towards the kitchen. I follow him and we stand apart and smile and greet each other again and he says so warmly, Oh, how good to see you, Livy. I can't respond likewise. I simper and then yell once more, Dad! He happens to be arriving at the kitchen door just as I call and enters a little flustered. As soon as he sees Carl, he is transformed. Carl, you're here, wonderful! Why didn't anyone tell me? Oh, sit down, sit down! We all sit and speak at once and laugh and then Carl tells us of his journey and of things going on in his university department. Everything's jovial and hearty between them. And so I find myself smiling indulgently at them, as though I were their mother. And I realise at once how dearly I love my father. How detestable his situation is now. And how desperately he must be struggling to be a father at all. And then I remember. Where is she? Where's Carl's daughter? Has she even joined us in the kitchen, or did she simply ignore us and go straight into the living room? I jerk my body into neurotic activity and look frantically around the room. I'm about to tell Carl about the omission when it begins again. That smudging of my sight, that blurred tunnel vision. I feel as though my head has been plunged underwater. The sound of the talking men has warped into distant scratches on a double bass. I see her through the pink and yellow fog sitting at the side of the room on one of the kitchen chairs. She's smiling broadly at me, her hair a black mushroom. I even see her clothes, her tight tweed skirt, her high-necked orange sweater. All around her is a gleaming mist, a tide of smeared vision lapping against her form. Her smile is the receipt of joy. So... I must close my eyes again and lower my head. The clunking of my forehead on the table stops the men short. What's wrong? demands my father. Livy? Where is she? I ask in all innocence. It's not my fault they've neglected her so badly. She's left us again and they haven't so much as mentioned her. Who? demands my father. Where is she? I put to Carl and he repeats, Who? Your daughter? The silence of a kitchen is not a silence at all. It is the sound of a humming fridge, a wheezing appliance here, an untraceable click there. My daughter? asks Carl. He seems to be trying to get in on the joke. At the door, when I opened it. My girls are not here, he tells me. Mel is doing her second year in France and Steph is at work. I'm sorry, Olivia, was there someone in the street? I'm conscious of gaping. The fridge sniggers. My father snaps out of it. Shall I get your bag, Carl? Liv, is the wardrobe clear? No, I couldn't finish it. I'll do it now. And I leave the room. Up on the landing, I lift the dropped bundle of clothes out of the wardrobe and onto my bed. I haven't the stamina to move the rest yet. 
I can hear the men talking below and strain to hear the missing voice, the voice of the dark-haired woman who slipped in and then slipped away somewhere in the house. It occurs to me that she may have come upstairs and I make a little tour of the bedrooms to check. As I emerge from the spare room, Carl is coming upstairs. So where shall I put this? he asks, swinging his overnight bag. From downstairs come the clangs and scrapes of my father preparing lunch. In here, I say, and lead the way into the little back room overlooking the garden. Carl sighs and lands on the bed. Any of your work in here? he inquires, as I stand against the radiator. Um, the cushion covers. They're a screen print I did two years ago called Squirrels. And, uh, let's see. My sight is sucked into a vortex of gentle but persistent movement. A tube of hazy vision ends with her, with a smiling woman. She's sitting. I can make her out comfortably despite the mist, close beside him on the bed. Her legs are crossed and one of her feet in a brown court shoe with a huge gold buckle is barely any distance away from me. It is solid. She is solid yet behind some sort of veil of faded lines and colours. She's listening to me, but I'm not speaking. She's looking at me intently. And through the liquid plugs in my ears, I hear so far away, so minutely, some words. What is it? What are you looking at, Olivia? What can you see? I let my head fall forward, because I know by now that that action evaporates the fog and frees me from the adhesions on my eyes. I place my hands over my face and remain with dropped head in that now familiar recovery position. Here is Carl, gently prizing away my hands, his eyes searching me over rapidly. Who is she? I ask, not in pain nor even fear. I have a sense that he understands me, but he scowls and asks, Who? Where? Sitting there on the bed beside you. Only she's not on the bed anymore. She's standing beside him, looking at me with concern. And the funny thing is that I can see her pretty well, my eyes now accustomed to her own festival of coloured mists. She smiles at me reassuringly, leans forward to give me a comforting pat on the shoulder, then leaves the room. I watch her go. What, here? asks Carl as he swivels round. Well... She just walked out. You saw her. This time I'm the one trying to console him because he seems so forlorn. He sits heavily on the bed and is silent while I watch him. I can make out the hairline grimace of internal calculation. She just walked out, I repeat, all lame and tame now, all weak and without will. She just walked out. Downstairs, my father drops something and Carl and I both awaken from our paused existence and move to the door and head downstairs. Over lunch, which is dominated by the two men's conversation about conferences and visiting lectureships, I see her a couple more times. Once, briefly, in the chair in the corner and then leaning over Carl and inspecting his food, a hand resting on the back of his chair. I can make out, through the distortion of my vision, her plum-coloured lipstick. The men wait until coffee to reminisce, and they cover much ground, everything except my mother. 
At one point, they recall an objectionable mutual acquaintance and fall back, both of them laughing at the same mysteries of his idiocy. As the sweet rattling of their laughter clears, Carl asks me, Livy, did you ever meet Moira? She was two when they last met, says my father. Moira sat her on her lap and made her giggle more than we ever could. You don't remember what she looked like? She was only two, repeats my father. No, I say. Can you see her now? My father sucks in his breath violently. Yes, she's leaning over your chair right there. What? demands my father vehemently and stands at once to inspect the vacant area beside his friend. What does she look like? asks Carl gently. She's just gone, I say. What did she look like? What the hell are you talking about? snaps my father, but I can hear that he's becoming more cowed and uncomfortable. She's tall, with black hair and a thick bun right on the top of her head, and she has dark lips and an orange jumper. Oh, and she smiles a really wide and kind smile. Such a smile. And she has shoes with with big gold buckles, he mutters. My father is virtually growling as he insists, please explain yourselves. Carl Aidan Kreitman is a professor in neuropsychology, now in his 60s, but very active in his field. He's of part German descent, English born. He met my father while they were students in London in the early 60s. They've nothing in common in terms of their disciplines, other than the broader science of their training. I've no reason to suspect that he is any less inclined than my father to dismiss the inexplicable, the murky and the emotional. But then, the inexplicable to one person can be insultingly simple fare to another. Carl Kreitman seems barely troubled by the notion of my having seen his wife, standing beside him some twenty years after she died. In fact, it is he who informs me that she is his wife. At first I thought she was his daughter, and then I had no idea who she was and what she was doing forever blurring my vision, her smile setting across my horizon. My father gives me the impression that he would like to sling us out of his house, as though we were playing some vastly insensitive joke on him. Tell me, says Carl, do you feel strange or ill when you see her? My vision goes blurred. It's like I'm looking through a kaleidoscope. He thinks about this. Carl, really? starts my father, but Carl lifts a hand. It's nothing, he says simply. I've come across it, or forms of it, plenty of times before. You have? I ask, startled. What you have to do now, says Carl, addressing us both, is to forget the clichés and the popular representations of afterlife. You have to try, if you can, to think in completely new terms. I have seen your wife, I'm thinking. I have seen someone I should not have seen, and you sit there boldly, not even wanting any kind of verification, and talk about the afterlife. Just that word gives rise to a creeping terror in me, a sense that my life is altering with every thought and word. What's going on? I ask him. Describe her again, he prompts. She's got blackish hair up in a thick crown on the top of her head. She has dark lipstick and is smiling really broadly, always. She's wearing an orange polo neck sweater. I remember it well, says Carl. And a brown tweed skirt, 
Can you remember, he asks, is there a brooch on her sweater? An owl, I say at once, without even realising that I'd seen it. I gave her that for her birthday. She wore it nearly all the time in the years before she died. Livy, did you see Moira at any point in your adulthood? No, I say vaguely. I cannot help but wonder at that brooch and at how I'd pulled that fact from the shadow that she left behind her. But now my father speaks. Oh, she was a student at Durham, Carl. She could have seen Moira at any point without even realising it in the street or something. That's just what I'm thinking, Peter. Livy, you may have seen Moira and that image may have stayed with you. The image you have of her now dates back to around the early 80s. I don't understand. Why she come back? Carl opens his mouth. His breath hovers before speech, then collapses into a sigh. There are triggers, I believe. Real objects, sights or feelings that come together, very rarely, and produce a certain result. This kind of sighting relies on the fortuitous coming together of these necessary factors. I'm going to guess at them here. You were experiencing a certain altered consciousness due to the recent death of your mother. Maybe you were in a state of intense longing for her this morning. You saw me at the door and you were immediately catapulted into the experience of a former sighting of me. A sighting of which you have no conscious memory, but which must have taken place some years ago. Maybe we were sitting at a restaurant table next to yours. Maybe we passed you in the street. Then, of course, we know for a fact that your brain has somewhere in its lock and keep a visual memory of Moira from when she bounced you on her knees when you were a baby. This is all hypothesis, barely testable, I'm afraid. But, like I said, I've come across it before. I have seen Moira, yes. Yes, I have seen this vibrant woman with her unearthly smile. I must have. Carl, I can't remember ever seeing her. I cry out to him and I feel my eyes suddenly soaking through. Well, your subconscious does. Please remember that your brain will work and learn and grow whatever you do. It wants to learn. It has a will to learn. There are skills of the mind that are beyond your control. It ploughs on without your consent. But I'm not listening. I'm losing the final threads of strength of will. I let the tears fall. Through them I see the faces of these two men. They are troubled on my behalf, but they are strange at this moment, not my men. My father pulls his chair next to mine and puts an arm around my shoulders, as though he's attempting to stop me from collapsing. I'm hugely uncomfortable and long to be free. There is a dawning in my mind, a growing conclusion that the world has changed irrevocably in the past few minutes. Don't say all of this! I spit at our visitor. My father tightens his grip around me. I'm not so certain that it's meant as a comfort anymore. You can't just do this. You can't just tell me that everything I believed and knew and was certain about were utter rubbish. I squirm out of my father's grasp and half rise from my chair. You're telling me that everything I knew to be the case, that all the bunkum I knew not to be the case, is all wrong. If the dead are visiting me, then I was wrong about the afterlife. If I was wrong about the afterlife, then I was wrong about religion and all of it. I can't turn it all around again. I can't. 
and if I was wrong about the dead being dead, then, well then, my mother. How those tears plummeted. But Professor Karl Kreitman's smile is now gentle and paternal and so familiar. And he almost seems relieved by my outburst. He leans across and pats the top of my hand. At the same time, my father pushes my sodden hair from my face and strokes my temple with his palm. Oh, you dear thing, soothes Carl. Please don't worry about that. There's absolutely no reason for you to rethink anything like religion in the afterlife. It remains bunkum, I assure you. Now, now, there's been no visitation. No one has come from anywhere to call on you. The dead are dead. Please don't think that you have seen a phantom or anything as ludicrous as that. I'm sobbing on and off. The two men are comforting me. Carl has more to say. There are so many theories, actual areas of study about anything that remains of the mind after we die. But I am at the very most an agnostic about theories of consciousness surviving death. I'm not really interested in that kind of thing. No, what interests me is how the living sometimes manage to rematerialize the dead in some mechanical process of the mind, which assembles images at a certain point later on. Think, Livy. Think of all the thousands of faces you've come across in such a short period of time. There are faces you casually analyse every day, sitting on the tube or in a shop or passing in a corridor. Are they gone forever? Or are they stored? Do some make a stronger impression and in that case are they stored somewhere else? Somewhere we haven't ventured yet? Moira's smile seems to have become deeply embedded in your consciousness. It is central to your memory of her. Your experience today is far from the first time that I've come across this phenomenon, though I must admit that I've never been the trigger of it myself. In subjects I've studied, I've always come across some sort of physical notification that this concatenation of memories is occurring, maybe feeling faint or nervous or dizzy. Your blurred vision may simply be another version of this. You're not special. The situation is special. It's possible we all have it in us. All the circumstances have to be right. And he stops, perhaps out of sympathy for my ravaged nerves. The room is silent. Even those characteristic kitchen sounds have abandoned us. We are confined, contained. Then maybe I will see her again. Very possibly, says Carl. While I am here, your main trigger is here. And he gives me one of those flat smiles which says I can't help you anymore, you know. But no, not her, Carl. Maybe I will see my beloved again. My dearest, my most adored mother. Maybe there will be some sort of concatenation again, some coming together of these triggers. Maybe I can work out for myself what these triggers might be. A photograph or a place or, or a smell. The smell of her, of her clothes. Will you excuse me, I say, rising. I'm sorry. I get up and leave the kitchen and am vaguely aware of the men watching me leave. Great waves of grief wash through me, push at my diaphragm so that I'm gulping as I stumble upstairs. Her smell. Maybe I will see you again. My darling mother. 
I reach the landing and stand before the open wardrobe. I see those dark folds of familiar fabric inside. I fall to my knees and tip myself forward into the wardrobe and am enveloped by those clothes, by that smell. That smell. Is that a trigger? Will I see you again? Will I ever see you again? The Smell in the Wardrobe, produced by Tempest Productions. Written by Vivi Berkey. Read by Rebecca Charles. Music, Timothy Bond. Studio production, Francis Nubbeam Webber. <laughs>